Hi, this is Scott Walker, and you can't recall courage. Thanks for joining us again for another uh, podcast and continue to pass the word on to others. You know, this is a really remarkable week. 30 years ago this week, actually 30 years ago, technically tomorrow, uh, Saturday, November 9th has a special date this year because 30 years ago, on the 9th of November, the Berlin Wall came down. That is remarkable. In fact, one of the groups I'm involved with, YAF, Young America's Foundation, uh, particularly the, the chapters on campuses, YAF, Young Americas for Freedom, today are holding a mock uh, tear down the wall sessions where they're building up replicas of the walls on college campuses all across the United States and celebrating Freedom Week. And I want to share a little bit about this because when I think about that, I was about that age in 1989. I was in college as well. And uh, the things that were happening, not just on this date, on that night in Germany in, uh, in 1989, but really in the years up to that, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, not just in a speech, uh, although the speech captures the essence of what he's getting at, but, but really uh, going back to Reykjavik and the Strategic Defense Initiative and his belief in it so much so that Gorbachev believed in it as well, really were all pieces of what led to the fall of communism uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall in the most obvious physical sense, but really the fall of communism, uh, not only between uh, uh, Eastern Germany, the Eastern Bloc countries, but obviously ultimately the old Soviet Union. And so I want to share a, a little bit of this because I, I think it's just remarkable for us to go back in time and think about both the words of this president, and then if we come back after the break, I'm going to give you a little insight from Peter Robinson, who was the primary speechwriter on this and what all went into it, because I think that as well is a story that needs to be told over and over and over again. So technically, President Reagan was traveling, was, was not going to spend a lot of time in Germany on this particular trip. It was June of 1987, June 12th to be exact. He, he begins by acknowledging people like Chancellor Hermit Kohl and others who were there. He talks about Berlin, uh, coming to Berlin as uh, American presidents had done, because remember, of course, uh, President John F. Kennedy had had famously come there, come to Germany and said, all men, all free men, whether they may li- wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin and therefore is a free man. And then that's where he said in German, I am a Berliner. Uh, and uh, take pride in the, the words, I am a Berliner. Um, and so in Berlin at the time, this was a remarkable speech for the President of the United States to be giving. He, uh, setting the stage, then went into this. Our gathering today is being broadcast throughout Western Europe and North America. I understand that it is being seen and heard as well in the East. To those listening throughout Eastern Europe, I extend my warmest greetings and the goodwill of the American people. To those listening in East Berlin, a special word. Although I cannot be with you, I address my remarks to you just as surely as to those standing here today before me. For I join you as I join your fellow countrymen in the West in this firm, this unalterable belief. And then he said in German, there is only one Berlin. Behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city. Part of it, a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. From the Baltic south, these barriers cut across Germany in a gash of barbed wire, concrete, dog runs, and guard towers. Further south, There may be no visible, no obvious wall. 
but there remain armed guards and checkpoints all the same. Still a restriction on the right to travel. Still an instrument to impose upon ordinary men and women the will of a totalitarian state. Yet it is here in Berlin where the wall emerges most clearly. Here, kind of across your city, where the news photo and the television screen have imprinted this brutal division of a continent upon the mind of the world. Standing before the Brandenburg Gate, every man is a German, separated from his fellow men. Every man is a Berliner, forced to look upon the scar. So then he continues to give some history and talks about the Marshall Plan and all that's happening. In fact, particularly points out the economic boom in places like Western Germany and particularly in West in the West Germany part of Berlin. He continues with these words, where four decades ago there was rubble, today in West Berlin there is the greatest industrial output of any city in Germany. Busy office blocks, fine homes and apartments, proud avenues, and the spreading lawns of parkland. Where cities' cultures seem to have been destroyed, today there are two great universities, orchestras and an opera, countless theaters and museums. Where there was want, today there's abundance, food, clothing, automobiles, the wonderful goods of the Kudam. From devastation, from utter ruin, you Berliners have in freedom rebuilt the city that once again ranks as one of the greatest on earth. The Soviets may have had other plans, but my friends, there were a few things the Soviets didn't count on. And then he talks about Berliner heart, Berliner humor, yes, and Berliner schnoz, and there was laughter. Then he continues, In the 1950s, Khrushchev predicted, We will bury you. But in the West today, we see a free world that has achieved a level of prosperity and well-being unprecedented in all human history. In the communist world, we see failure, technological backwardness, declining standards of health, even one of the most basic kind, too little food. Even today, the Soviet Union still cannot feed itself. After these four decades, then, there stands before the entire world one great and inescapable conclusion. Freedom leads to prosperity. Freedom replaces the ancient hatreds among the nations. With comedy and peace, freedom is the victor. And now the Soviets themselves may, in a limited way, be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, 
come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Those remarks were hardly covered at the time. In fact, they didn't weren't much of a blip in the U.S. media, but by the time the wall itself came down November 9th of 1989, the media and plenty of others across America and really around the world went back to that speech. We're going to talk a little bit more about what went into that speech and really what went into the changes that occurred, not just because of that speech, but because of the efforts of a president with a vision, not only for America, but for freedom around the world. We'll come right back and talk a little bit more on on, uh, on that subject. You're listening to Scott Walker on You Can't Recall Courage. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Hey, Scott Walker here on You Can't Recall Courage. So we're talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, what it means, and the speech that Ronald Reagan gave on June 12th in 1987. So uh, almost two and a half years before the actual fall of the wall uh, obviously, the speech itself is powerful, and I enjoyed reading just some excerpts of it. Uh, but it was interesting. I, I went back and read a piece that Peter Robinson wrote. He, of course, was the uh, primary speech writer for this, and he talks about how this all came together. Um, he mentioned that the president himself was on a, on a trip. There was a celebration of the 750th anniversary of the founding of the Berlin Wall happening earlier that year. President Reagan had originally been planning on visiting Berlin. He was supposed to be in Europe, first visiting Rome and then spending a number of days in, in Venice for an economic summit. Peter went on to point out that uh, the West German government, though, had asked him to stop by, even just for a brief amount of time. And so uh, Peter went and uh, <coughs> excuse me, was preparing for that speech, a speech that they thought um, if the president would be speaking at the Berlin Wall, was probably only going to draw an audience in their mind about 10,000, and it would be a good place to talk about some foreign policy. So he went there along with the logistics team and the Secret Service, who obviously went to check things like this out. And uh, he talks a number of interesting things about the speech. He he went in to see the diplomat there and, and uh, the local uh, diplomat from the United States, and this guy was very nervous about the president being there. He, he pointed out probably more things about what the president shouldn't say, as Peter said, than what he should say. And he, he made it very clear that most left-leaning of all the West Germans, the Ber West Berliners, were intellectually and politically sophisticated. So he really was very concerned about any sort of pro-American, anti-Soviet Union stuff. He thought that they, you know, they wouldn't take it very well. And, and that made a, a firm imprint on his mind. Um, yet, you know, it's interesting. So he, he also said that after he met with him in the advance team, he took a flight in an Army helicopter. And it, it was so uh, visually amazing for him because he could see that um, back at that time when he was looking at it, the structure really dominated. The Berlin Wall dominated Berlin. You know, remember it was uh, it was erected first in 1961. Obviously, it was to keep the fl uh, the flow of the masses from each Germany trying to uh, really escape the, the communist system by fleeing into West Berlin. And so you had this gigantic wall, dozen feet tall, circled West Berlin. Um, it, it really reminded you of the difference between the, the two very different types of of government. As the president talked about, I think creating a, an amazing visual picture. Uh, you could see the difference between the prosperity in the West and the uh, 
the promises, the failed promises of prosperity really failing on, on the East. And in some ways, it's, it's like I know many people have seen the nighttime, the satellite view at night of the difference between North and South Korea. And for anyone who's doubting, I mean, to me, those are just visual reminders of the difference between freedom, free enterprise uh, versus uh, socialism and, and, it's, and, and its worst form, communism. And so, uh, so Peter talks some more about it, but was interesting. So he'd done all this. He'd done his due diligence. He had, uh, he'd gone away from the rest of the advance team, and he had dinner with a number of people from West Berlin. And the, uh, the host uh, had put it together. They'd kind of given him, as Peter said, a, a, di- a cross-section, different walks of life, political outlooks, uh, people from business, academics, so forth. And um, so they were having dinner, and uh, um, <laughs> he, he was so stuck by this comment that that American diplomat in Berlin had said that the... Uh, the people, particularly in West Berlin, had gotten used to the wall. So he asked us, he said, is it true? Have you gotten used to the wall? And there was this pause. It was an awkward moment. And he, Peter writes uh, that he, he thought maybe he'd kind of fully uh, done what this diplomat warned not to be done in the speech and that proven himself to be this kind of brash, tactless American uh, that the diplomat was talking about. And this part I love, I'm going to read this, because Peter writes about this so vividly. He said, then one man raised an arm and pointed. He said, my sister lives 20 miles in that direction. I haven't seen her in more than two decades. Do you think I can get used to that? Wow, powerful words. Peter went on to say, another man spoke. He said, each morning on his way to work, he walked past a guard tower. Each morning, a soldier gazed down at him through the binoculars. That soldier and I speak the same language. We share the same history. But one of us is a zookeeper and the other is an animal. And I'm never certain which one. And then the woman who was hosting the dinner chimed in. She said, (laughs) and, and Peter writes that even though she was very gracious, wonderful host, she suddenly had grown extremely angry, her face even turning red. She made a big fist and pounded it to the palm of the other and said, if this man Gorbachev is serious with his talk of Glasnost and Pestroka, we should, she said, she should, he can prove it. He can get rid of this wall. Wow. You can see where Peter got the inspiration for this. And he told his boss back at the White House, and um, it was interesting. Uh, um, he kind of thought his boss was going to talk him out of it. But his boss said, you know, calling for the wall to be torn down, it might just work. And so he went through draft after draft after draft, and he couldn't get it right. And finally, after he kind of got it where he wanted to be, um, he produced what he called an acceptable draft. Needed some work. Uh, They had to do some work on this stuff on arms reductions and some other stuff. Uh, But uh, it was interesting. He said, on Friday, May 15th, the speeches for the president's trip to Rome, Venice, and Berlin, including his draft, were forwarded to the president. And on that Monday, May 18th, the speechwriters joined him in the Oval Office. <laughs> Peter says, my speech was the last to be discussed. Uh, his boss asked the president for comments on the draft. The president said he liked it. Then Peter chimed in, and I love this line. He said, Mr. President, I learned on the advance trip that your speech will be heard not only in West Berlin, but also throughout East Germany. Depending on weather conditions, I explained, radios would be able to pick up the speech as far east as Moscow itself. 
Is there anything you'd like to say to the people on the other side of the Berlin Wall? So President Reagan looked at him and thought, well, there's that passage about tearing down the wall. That wall has to come down. That's what I'd like to say to them. Wow. So uh, President you know, in his own words, own thoughts, said, that's the message I want to send to the people in East Berlin and all the way to Moscow. Now, you can only imagine, though, what the bureaucrats in the deep state thought about this. So you had the State Department and the National Security Council had to look at each of these speeches. Both clearly tried to squelch it. In fact, the Assistant Secretary of State for Eastern European Affairs challenged the speech by telephone. Peter went on to say a, a senior member of the National Security Council staff protested the speech in a memo. The ranking American diplomat in Berlin objected to the speech by cable. Um, they just went over and over and over on it. In fact, he said, according to his records, there were no fewer than seven drafts of the speech that were done. In each of them, the call to tear down the wall was missing. It then went on. He was called in, and his boss, I should say, was called in, and by then Chief of Staff Howard Baker, former member of the United States Senate, and it was mentioned that Secretary of State George Schultz, a guy who I like and admire, but clearly Secretary Schultz had gotten word from people within his agency that they were concerned, and they brought that concern up as well. Ultimately, though, the pushback was that the president had said he liked, he had actually talked about that particular line, that he was comfortable with it. Um, he talks about it going a step further, so the traveling party reaches Italy. So there, he, the speechwriter, Peter, was in Washington. Secretary of State's office object to it once again. In fact, called the deputy chief of staff uh, at the time uh, who was on, on the trip. And um, you know, Secretary of State said he thought the line was too tough, tough on Gorbachev. Um, the secretary, or excuse me, the assistant uh, chief of staff, the deputy chief of staff, then flat out asked the president again. He wanted to know. And, um, okay, so Reagan asked his advice. He thought the line about tearing the wall and sound pretty good. And he soon told him, you're the president. You get to decide. <laughs> and then I love this. He said, the, the, uh, he points out the deputy chief of staff <laughs> recalls after he said that, you're the president, so you get to decide. President Reagan uh, got that wonderful, knowing smile on his face, and he said, let's leave it. Today, the president arrived in Berlin. State Department, National Security Council submitted yet another alternative draft. They were still on it in the very morning of the speech. And yet, the president said, the boys at state are going to kill me, but it's the right thing to do. This president knew the right thing to do. In this case, it was saying, General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I love the document that's at the Presidential Library for Ronald Reagan. You look at it, page 10 of his speech, it is clear the president knew what he was talking about. He had underwritten the lines, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He knew what he was saying then, just like he knew throughout his presidency. He knew it at Reykjavik, when despite all the media hype and hysteria, President Reagan walked away from that because he knew the Soviet Union wasn't yet ready to give what he and the American people needed. He was willing to sacrifice his 
political perception at the time to do what was right and just for the long term. And he knew in the end that if given the chance, freedom would always, always triumph over the policies of socialism and communism wherever they might stand around the world. Thanks for joining us today on You Can't Recall Courage. Till we talk next time, next Friday, keep fighting for freedom.